Good evening. Good evening. Just doing a little. I love a little bit of uh, a little bit of gardening before I get started. So I was just doing a little bit of gardening, as well as a bit of gardening. I always forget something, and I've forgotten my glass of water. There we go. Okay, folks. Well. Good evening. Welcome to Orangefield this evening. Welcome to a place of family and a place of love, Um, a place where we don't have to perform because we we rest in someone else's performance. My name's Johnny. I feel like I should say I'm part of the team here at Orangefield, but uh, I'm not. But my name is Johnny, and we are now going to move into a time of teaching. So let me open my Bible. I'm going to open it at Matthew 5, 13 to 16. And the little subtitle that's been added says, Salt and Light. So Matthew 5, 13 to 16. Let me read this to you and listen for the word of God. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Amen. Tonight we're going to talk about salt and light. I had a feeling during the week it would be a good idea to get our heads and our hearts around the idea of salt and light because we send our children to salt and light every week. I'm pretty sure they're both acronyms. I was trying to work out during the week what light stands for. I've got salt. I couldn't get light. I remember what crumbs was. It also reminded me of a time when our teenage work was called Sniff, uh, Sunday Night Youth Fellowship, and it still is. And we used to have a young adults ministry. Now, this is going back maybe 20 years. We had a young adults ministry called Access. And Access was very briefly resurrected as glue. Um, If you're wondering who came up with the name, it was Stephen Nelson. And glue was G-L-U-E, God loves us Egypts. So uh, that was very briefly our young adults ministry. Let me tell you why the the young adults ministry was very briefly rebranded as glue. It's because Ken, who was our minister at the time, stood up one Sunday evening uh, and halfway through the evening service, he said, the young people may now leave for sniffing glue. There, there won't be any sniffing glue tonight, just uh, salt and light. A little bit of location to, to start with. Uh, this is the Sermon on the Mount, and this is the beginning, this is the inauguration of Jesus' ministry, a guy who's uh, changed career, and um, Matthew more than anybody else, uh, sorry, Matthew more than any of the other gospel writers Uh, alludes over and over again to the Old Testament. He's writing for a predominantly Jewish audience. And um, he he talks about Jesus beginning his teaching ministry on the side of a mountain. 
And there's meant to be a little echo of Moses in that. Um, and if it was around today, we'd call it Mountainside Fest, okay? But they just called it the Sermon on the Mount. And um, Jesus begins to teach, and what he's saying uh, throughout many parts of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, what he's saying that this is what we do, um, but more than what we do, this is who we are. So it made me think a little bit about, do you know those uh, boards that have become quite popular which are about your family and people buy them and put them up in their kitchen or living room and it says, in our family we forgive and we love each other and we hug sometimes and we pray together and uh, on the other side it says, um, in our family we bicker and fight, we overeat and we resent people. Um, those boards have become quite popular, and I know it's a silly analogy, but it's a little bit like that, because when people put that up in the house, what they're trying to say is, this is what we do, but it's a little bit more than what we do. I'm actually trying to define who we are as a family, uh, and when Jesus begins to teach at the Sermon on the Mount, he says to uh, his disciples who have gathered around him and to some others who will become his followers, he says, guys, this is what we do, and more than what we do, this is fundamentally who we are. Uh, and then he says this, he, there's the Beatitudes first, uh, and just as he uh, concludes that, then he says this, you are the salt of the earth. And verse 14, you are the light of the world. It's as if somebody asked Jesus, uh, what impact will Christians have on the world around them? And of all the metaphors he could have used, of, of the catalogue of different images that would have been available to someone in that cultural moment at that time, he decides to use salt and light. Now, I'm going to go for it. I was warned by my wife this wasn't a good idea, but I thought I would light a little candle. And I've been told the idea is to drop it very gently. Don't uh, throw it into the jar. Nearly forgot to blow that out. It would have been a disaster. So there we go. Guys, of all the images, of all the metaphors, of all the pictures that Jesus could have used to describe what his followers will be like in the world, he uses salt and light. And my question is, why? Why salt and why light? Well, I think part of the answer is both of these things, simply by their presence, have a transforming effect. Salt and light both transform simply by their presence. Jesus is talking about his followers transforming the world around them, transforming the culture around them, and making a difference. See, God's plan of redemption, and I don't know how else to put this, but God's plan of redemption is not to blast the earth. God's plan to renew all things, God's plan to recreate and to uh, break in with light and with hope and with new life is not to blast the earth. For some mysterious and wonderful reason, God's plan is to call you and to call us into a participation in the work that he's doing. 
to participate every day in real time in epic things and in boring things in the recreation of the world around us. And I say in epic things and in boring things because not every day is epic and actually not every uh, situation that we can call to mind is going to end in a breakthrough of life and hope. Not everyone that we pray for and that we love comes to faith in Jesus. But it's a little bit like the light after December the 21st. Rainy days are still possible. And sometimes it doesn't feel like it. There isn't any ostensible sign of change. But the fact of the matter is that in little increments, bit by bit by bit, the light is coming. And the story of the Bible drama says that even when it doesn't feel like it, even when it doesn't look like it, bit by bit by bit, in small increments, and at times in epic breakthroughs, the kingdom of God is coming, and God's plan to bring the kingdom to earth is not to blast the earth, but to draw us into participation in what he's doing. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that the church that has ceased to engage the world has ceased to be the church. Say that again. Bonhoeffer said that the church that has ceased to engage the world around it has ceased to be the church. Throughout the Old Testament, the mandate given to the people of God was always to bless and to serve and to be a light for others to engage the world around them. And when Jesus says, you are salt and you are light, the scope of that picture and of that vision is enormous. Let's get our heads around that for a little moment. He said, you are the salt of the earth the whole earth. You are the light of the world, the whole world, everywhere, every day, wherever your front line is. For some of us, it's work. For some of us, it's home. For some of us, something somewhere else, someone else will come to mind. But wherever our front line is, the vision is enormous. And I don't think we've always managed very well to get our head around the scope of the vision that God has for transforming his world. The vision given to us by the Bible drama is of transformation in culture, um, but in media, in, in art, and in trade, and in education, in law, politics, homes, families, communities, cities, whole nations, through the creativity and through the compassion and the kindness that's in the church. The tipping point is still the individual salvation of souls, but the mandate is not, that is not the mandate alone. It is also the renewal of all things with no division between the sacred and the secular. In 1779, William was at Cambridge University and uh, when he left Cambridge University, he went into politics and after he'd been in politics for six years, he became a Christian. And shortly after he became a Christian, he began to explore the idea of becoming a minister in the church. And his friends were talking to him about this. uh, And he was really agonizing over whether to pursue the passion that he had for political activism or whether to become a minister in the church. And one day his friends, now you have to say allegedly, but allegedly one day his friends took him aside and they said, William, you are choosing or you're agonizing between the work of God and the work of a political activist, 
we humbly suggest you could do both. His imagination, his brilliance, his conviction, it it led to cultural transformation on an epic scale, an immense scale. His name was William Wilberforce. A friend of mine who went into teaching said that uh, my dream is I will be placed somewhere in a classroom, in any school, in any part of this city. And my hope and my dream is that I will have a classroom that will become an outpost of the kingdom of God. I thought, that's, what an amazing vision to enter the world of education with, that to have a classroom that in some school, in some part of this city, is a little outpost of the kingdom of God, where kingdom values matter, and where young people come under the influence of someone who is flowing with the life and the resurrection power of Jesus and encountering his presence. I'd love to make four observations really quickly about the text tonight, and then I want to tell you a story, maybe two, we'll see how we go, about how I think this cultural transformation actually happens, or I want to tell you about one or two experiences I've had in my life where I've, I've seen it in the flesh. Four observations about the text really quickly. Jesus says, you are the light of the world, you are the salt of the earth, and in, in the Greek, the emphatic emphasis is on the word you. So you've all seen the poster from the Second World War uh, with the finger pointing, and it's like, you, uh, your country needs you and the emphasis in the text is on the word you. So Jesus gathered these people around him. He said, You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Now, first and foremost, this is a culture where men would daily pray, Thank you, God, that I am not a woman nor a Gentile. And yet the woman and the poor and the peasants, they were there. And Jesus pointed and he said, You, you are the light of the world. You are the salt. Of the earth, everyone was included in this, uh, and, and the men. Well, the men were hardly a parade of the world's most impressive uh, poets and intelligentsia. Like the men were Galilean fishermen, and Jesus pointed at them and said, "You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth." Uh, and I think Jesus would do the same for us today. Nobody else would have pointed at those people and said, "There's the light of the world. There's the salt of the earth." And maybe sometimes we feel the same way about our own lives and our own families, our own communities. Jesus would still point at us as the church in the 21st century. And he would say, for the world that's out there and all of the darkness and all of the brokenness and all of the pain that's there, you, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. Second observation, it's a statement of fact. It's not an aspirational statement. He doesn't say you could be the light of the world, you could be the salt of the earth. Uh, If you work really hard and I um, begin to transform your life from the inside out, then sometime in the future this is how it will be. It's It's a statement of fact. And sometimes whenever I come to church, not every week, but sometimes when I come to church, it's taken me a huge amount of effort just to be here because the transformation of my inner life is really slow. And really painful and as a result sometimes I feel like a total fraud and sometimes I just feel like a straight up bad Christian um, and sometimes I feel like a failure. Jesus' teaching begins with 
an invitation to the empty-handed. He says that the kingdom of God belongs to those who are poor in spirit. So, and then he makes this, and it's a, a statement of fact. He says, you are the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. It's not something that is attained by your effort. It's by God's grace. And the tone of what he says is not become something else. It's be who you already are. Embrace who you already are. It's not your life that is somehow the light or the salt. It's the life of Christ in you and the Holy Spirit working through you. Third thing, there's a dual function. So salt and light, I think the way Jesus uses them in the picture, they're kind of inseparable. Without the distinctiveness of the salt, the light is pale and poor. But when the salt is distinctive and doing what it's supposed to be doing, the light will flow from it naturally. I think they're inseparable, but there's also a dual function. Salt was an extremely precious commodity. We still sometimes say, hey, that guy's not worth his salt. Don't we? Sometimes. Don't think I've ever used it. But you might hear it said, that guy's not worth his salt. It's because soldiers in the time of Jesus were paid in salt. Like, well done, good job. Have some salt. I can't imagine the church staff would put up for that. But... People were paid in salt because it was a precious commodity. It, it preserved, it flavored, um, and, and it purified. It restrained something from happening. And what Jesus is saying is he's saying wherever there is decay in this world, wherever your front line is, I can guarantee you because of the fabric of this world, you are in contact with some kind of decay or some kind of brokenness uh, or, or wherever... Wherever there is disintegration or injustice, we stand against that. We are a faithful presence within culture and we stand against it. Light, on the other hand, is illuminating, it dispels darkness, it's penetrating, and a tiny light can make a big difference. There's a dual function, they're connected, both bring transformation but only whenever they are in close contact with something. And I'll say a little bit more about that before I finish. Lastly, the the final observation I want to make is that Jesus envisages the possibility that these things might not do what they're supposed to do. And it, it almost doesn't make sense what he says. He says, if salt loses its saltiness, how can you have unsalty salt? Salt, by its very definition and nature, is salty. It doesn't make any sense. And he says, if, if it's not salty, it's not good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. And then he says, you know, you don't hide light. Light, by its very definition, gives light to the world around it. You don't put it underneath something like a bowl and hide it. And some parts of the Bible are hard to understand. That's not one difficult part to understand. It just says, you know, unsalty salt is useless and a light that's hidden is completely useless. Jesus envisages the possibility that these things might not do what they're supposed to do, that um, there would be a breakdown in the way they're meant to function. On another occasion, in the Gospel of Luke, There's the same teaching recorded, and Jesus says that they're actually, salt that is no longer salty is not even good for manure, which is quite a funny thing to say, like as if you had a nice big pile of poo, right, and you were looking after it, and somebody said, oh, here, let me do you a favor, let me salt that poo for you, and you said to them, no, no, that salt that you use, that will actually ruin my pile of poo, all right? 
It's a ridiculous thing to say, but he's, it's hyperbole. He's trying to say, you know, it is utterly useless. It is so useless, it would actually soil poo itself, right? Um, and in the same way, light is not meant to be hidden. Why does he envisage that possibility? Well, sometimes as followers of Jesus, our, our life can end up like a carbon copy of the values that are around us. That's not being salt. Salt is distinctive. Friends, we, we cannot, um, you cannot live a life as a Jesus follower and you can't, you, you can't follow Jesus and handle time and money and pleasure uh, and family and community the same way that the rest of the world does. We have to be distinctive. I find one of the most amazing examples of that that I've heard recently, I was listening to somebody else doing a bit of teaching, uh, and they said, you know, that the world actually has made a God of productivity, and the world has made a God of busyness, and in many ways, our lives in the church are oriented exactly the same way as the rest of the world. We're over busy, overworked, overtired, uh, obsessed with productivity, and really struggling to find rest and a break. And he said, imagine... Um, People ask each other all the time, how are you doing? And the standard answer is, yeah, busy, yeah, busy, busy, yeah, I'm busy too. You busy? Yeah, very busy, very busy. And it, it kind of means, yeah, quite, I'm, I'm important, you know, I'm doing important things, you know, and very productive. Yes, we are also productive, great. Um, I said, imagine if when someone asked a Christian, uh, how, how are you? Are you busy? You know, and a Christian was able to say, do you know what word characterizes my life at the minute? Space. I just seem to have so much space. People would be pretty astonished by that statement and they would want to know why that was and how that had come about. It's just one, one example that's kind of been haunting me a little bit, but the values and the patterns and the goals of our life have to be different. And in the same way as salt has got to be salty, light has got, it's not meant to be hidden. It's got to be penetrating so Jesus says, you are salt and light, stay salty, keep her lit. Um, how does this cultural transformation thing actually happen? I'd love to share a story with you, but somebody explained it to me like this. They, they said, you know, here, here's how Christians transform culture in really small ways and in really big ways. Here's how being salt and light actually works out in practice. Here is what it looks like. It begins with proximity. We are in close contact with some kind of brokenness. And I have no idea what that could look like for you, but I know that even in my own neighborhood, Naomi and I are in close contact at times with some kind of brokenness. It begins with proximity. The thing with proximity is if your life is so full and your head space and your heart space is so overrun by distraction and by everything that you've stuffed into your life, it's actually difficult to even notice the things that you're proximate to. But it begins with proximity. After proximity, there's prophecy. And when I say prophecy, what I mean is we begin to engage with God to see things the way that he sees them, to speak on his behalf, a message of hope and a message of life. It's not necessarily about a PhD in theology. It's not the, the whole narrative of scripture, but words of life, words of hope, words that are on God's behalf. And we also begin to imagine what it might look like if the kingdom was to break in, 
If the kingdom patterns and values and way of living was to change what, what we're seeing and the brokenness that we're, we're in proximity with. And the final part of it is a process. Change doesn't happen overnight. It can be slow, but it requires some kind of action and some kind of stepping into what God is calling us to. So proximity and prophecy and a process. A number of years ago, Maybe three or four years ago, Naomi went, uh, my wife, Naomi, she went and spent uh, some time in Nicaragua, and she met uh, a girl there called Anna, and Anna had a friend called Isa, so there was Anna and there was Isa, and Anna and Isa had been with YWAM for a while, and they lived in a little town in a rural part of central Nicaragua, and they'd grown up in a reasonably well-off home. Um, and one day, Anna was cycling around her town, and she cycled around by a different route. And she'd never been uh, this way before. And 10 minutes from her own home, she cycled past a landfill site. And there were whole families working on the landfill site, children included. Uh, and as she began to cycle that route more often, and she began to see what was happening, she started to learn what was going on on the rubbish dump. You see, a young person growing up on the rubbish dump could expect a life of around 35 years. It's 35 degrees Celsius. They're sorting through rubbish, scavenging to make some kind of living to get by and make it to another day. Uh, and most of the rubbish dump is on fire, okay? Uh, and there's so much toxic fumes coming off the rubbish that a child could expect about 30 years before their lungs just gave out. And without really expecting this to happen, God had taken Anna from a life of relative comfort and of engagement with some mission agencies and doing some other stuff and brought her into proximity with darkness and brokenness and pain. And Anna started to reimagine what that sight might look like if the kingdom began to break in. And she started to think to herself, you know, if I could provide some sort of income for those families, or if I could find a way to educate those children, then maybe we could change their mindset about the future. We could persuade them that they're not going to spend the rest of their life on a rubbish dump, and we could begin to allow them to dream about becoming just about anything, a teacher, a doctor, taking up a trade, whatever, just not this, death and hopelessness. And as she started to dream about that, God began to shape the way that she saw things, began to speak to her about it. And she decided that she would move from prophecy and beginning to tell people about it, to speak out about it, to uh, dream and reimagine what it might look like. And she would begin a process of doing something about it. Uh, and she was on a flight to America for a YWAM uh, gathering and there was an American guy sat beside her, and they got into a conversation on the plane. And as they had this conversation, the guy asked her uh, about home, and she began to tell the story of this rubbish dump. And halfway through the conversation, she said, I've got this dream. I would like to set up some kind of center where young people can come. They can get something to eat, something to drink. They can be educated. They can, they can rediscover play. Isn't that what children are supposed to do? but I have no idea how it's going to happen. And this American guy said to her, 
I would like to make that happen for you. Uh, And a number of months later, he flew out to Nicaragua. They researched the town together and they found a piece of land. Uh, And this guy bought a piece of land that used to be farmland with uh, some building work already there. And he bought it for $10,000. And he didn't see it as buying any kind of controlling share or buying some sort of territory that was his own. He just bought it um, because God told him to, and he left. Uh, and, and five or six years later, the center, Bethel, uh, is educating hundreds of young people, children, watching them grow up, working with teenagers, working with families, working with mums, uh, and beginning to craft a future that looks completely different to how it did five years ago. Or 10 years ago. Because somebody who was brought into proximity with brokenness began to prophesy and dream over what God could do about it and partner with him in his work and participate in the work of God to renew something and to transform the culture and was brave enough to take the first step of the process and do something about it. I have another friend uh, called Ian and Ian's dad was a pastor And uh, just as his career as a pastor was coming to an end, about a year before he was due to retire, there was a knock on the door one day, and the police were at the door. And the police arrested his dad and took him into custody, and they confiscated the hard drive of his computer. Uh, And they found on his computer... um, illegal material that he'd been downloading over uh, about a year and a half. And a week before he was due to go to trial, Ian's dad took a heart attack and passed away. And without asking for it, in a place of total devastation, Ian had been brought into proximity with something that he never asked for and never wanted to be close to, a place of total brokenness and pain and darkness. And for maybe a year or so, he just ignored it and wouldn't engage with what God was trying to say to him. And then he began to prophesy. He began to see something that God was showing to him. He began to speak out and and say to people, I've had this idea. I've got this dream. There's something that I want to do. I feel God leading me in a new direction. Uh, And he had the guts to enter into a process and he did something about it. Uh, And Ian began a charity called The Naked Truth. Uh, And today Ian is in schools all around the United Kingdom And he's had opportunities to speak uh, to the House of Lords and to lobby the government and to change the attitude and the perception of a whole generation around internet pornography. Ian's part of a culture that is being transformed. What about here in our own church? We have recently uh, come into closer proximity with people that have arrived in Belfast, usually in South Belfast, and they've attempted to settle here, and it doesn't feel like home, 
uh, and it's very often a long way from home, uh, and they have lots of complex needs. But there are people in our own family and our own community here in Orangefield that have come into close proximity with that and begun to listen to what God is saying about how this could look different, about how our culture could be changed, and about how the future and destiny for those people could look different. Uh, And we, in this year ahead of us, will begin a process of working and journeying with some of those people to encourage them into work, to help them to find placement, to give them the dignity and the worth that work brings, and to begin to craft something that feels like home for them in Northern Ireland. I realize that those are all particularly uh, dramatic and epic examples. It's not always dramatic. It's not always epic. But being salt and light begins with proximity. It begins with being drawn in by God to some kind of brokenness and darkness in, in the culture around us, whether that's in a, in a staff room or whether it's in a home or whether it's in your workplace somewhere else or, or whether it's even in your own family. It, it begins with proximity. And when we start to lean into that and not pull ourselves away from it, we begin to partner with and engage with what God is doing. What comes next is prophecy. We start to see possibilities the way that God sees them. We start to speak on his behalf, bringing hope and and bringing life. Our imagination begins to see a better way or a better story or a way of rewriting the, the, the things that are happening in front of us. It starts with prayer. As we say, come to life. We speak life over the circumstances that are in front of us. We come in an opposite spirit to what we see. And very often then it has to lead to a process where we take the first step or a form of action in obedience to what God is calling us to. Alan Scott uh, has written a book called Scattered Servants and it's been put on the reading list. So I'm planning to read it at some stage. But in the last chapter, he says this, you know, the church of Jesus Christ fulfills its mandate to be salt and to be light by filling society, not by filling a sanctuary. In fact, heaven has solutions and the kingdom of God has inventions for every walk of life. So use your gifts, but not just in church Go and rewrite the story of a city in a thousand imaginative and provocative and innovative and compassion-filled ways. He finishes with this, because the next great move of God is not going to be a movement in the church. It will be a movement of the church into society, rewriting the story of every aspect of our cities, everyone, everywhere, every day, communicating, demonstrating, celebrating the supremacy of Christ in every corner of culture as he is making all things new. And what is his strategy? What is his plan for that? How is it going to happen? It's going to happen through us as we lean in, as we partner with him, as we listen, as we take steps of obedience, as we are salt and light in a world that is crying out for renewal and for hope. Let me pray. God, I want to ask that you'll take my words and 
Lord, wherever I've uh, indulged myself or missed the mark, you'll just let that fade now. And Lord, wherever you are speaking to us, wherever you're stirring us, I pray, Lord, that you'll just increase the volume of that in our hearts now. And we'll hear more of what you're saying. We'll hear it with greater clarity and urgency as well. And I pray, God, you'd help us even tonight to respond in our hearts to you and to not to become something different, but to be who we are, to embrace the call on our lives as a family, to be salt and light in a world that is dying for hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I think the band are going to come back um, and... We're going to worship together. I would love to ask you three questions uh, really quickly. I think some of us are in a place where when I, when I talk about proximity to brokenness and darkness, you're not exactly sure what that is, and you need to um, reflect on where in your everyday walking around uh, front line over the next week there is darkness and there's brokenness um, that God has purposefully brought you into proximity to. Um, some of us, it's, it's the prophetic thing. We, we're, we're aware of the darkness or brokenness or the thing that we're proximate to, but um, we haven't begun to imagine the possibilities as God sees them. Or, or we haven't begun to explain that to somebody else or even just speak it out. And maybe tonight with prayer ministry, you could just speak that out to somebody um, and begin to reimagine what it looks like when the kingdom breaks in. Um, some of us are a little bit further down the line, and actually we need to take a step of obedience. There's a process to change and to cultural transformation, even in the small things. And we need to ask God, what's the first stage of a process that you're calling me to engage in as salt and light in the world around me? So... There's three questions. I'd love to leave those with you and the band will lead us in worship.